I'm Emily Feed, author of This Vicious Grace, coming in summer 2022 from Wednesday Books. And I'm Anna, a teacher and a writer in the Query Trenches. And you're listening to Basic Pitches, where we... Two basic pitches... Break down the basics of writing and being a writer. I don't have anything, and that's exactly where I'm going to start. I'm here with Meredith Shore, author of As Seen on TV. Hi, Meredith. Did I say your name correctly? Did yes, I you did. It? Yes. No, you got it perfect. Oh, man. Um, listeners are probably tired of hearing me, uh, you know, butcher names or ask about them. So I will not. I'll be done with that. How are you today, Meredith? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. Talking Yay. I'm excited to talk with you. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you write? You are an adult romance rom-com or just romance? Rom-com for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, adult rom-com author. Um, your debut, as seen on TV, just came out this year, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, um, as seen on TV is a lighthearted romantic comedy that takes all of the small town tropes that readers have come, readers of small town romance and watchers of Hallmark movies have come to expect, and turns them on their heads. Yes. So, for instance, if you watch a lot of these movies or read a lot of small town romance, you're going to be used to really friendly, nosy, quirky locals and an establishment that serves like the best pie or cupcakes, seasonal festivals every weekend and like the real estate guy from the city who comes in to ruin everything. And so with my book, it's about a woman who is a lifelong New Yorker, 25 years old. She's always lived in Manhattan and she is fed up with city life. And she's obsessed with all things Hallmark and Gilmore Girls and small towns in general. And she thinks her life would be so much more simple if she lived in one of those TV fictional small towns. She'd be doing better in her career as a lifestyle journalist. She's freelance right now and she's having a lot of trouble getting anywhere. And she thinks that she would be in a committed relationship with maybe her high school sweetheart instead of frustrated with dating apps and getting ghosted. And then she has this opportunity to go to a small town on the story that's supposed to make her career. And it's she doesn't find any of the above. Like she has all these expectations and none of them match what she expects. And it puts her story in jeopardy because her story was pitched as a real life, small town living at a Hallmark premise. And it doesn't work out that way. And so she has to pivot. She's just a fish out of water in this small town where nobody's welcoming to her. There's no seasonal festivals. Nobody cares about the real estate guy. And the only person she actually is interested in, the only man or potential love interest, is another Manhattanite who works for the real estate developer that she hoped to bring down. I love every bit of this. Every bit. <laughs> I, I'm so glad to hear that. I hope other people find it intriguing as well. Oh my gosh. As someone who lives in that Hallmark small town, I live there. Like that's so cool. Teeny tiny mountain town. You're talking about festivals. There's literally the Scottish festival going on right now. Great food, best bakeries, named like, you know, named top ten small towns to go, like whatever. There's also the flip side of that, which is what you're describing, which is so funny. Like, it's almost as if you peeled back that layer of small town living because it's not always all that. Mm-hmm. That's funny. I So what I, as someone who writes like young adult fantasy, because I read it so much as a teen and, you know, in college, 
what drove you to rom-coms? I'm always curious about like why this, why this writing and not something else? Well, I've tried to write like more serious romance and something funny always happens. Like I, I just, I really love putting my characters in really awkward positions. I like premises that lend themselves to humor. Yeah. And back in the, I guess probably the early aughts or the nineties, I read a lot of chiclet. Uh-huh. Is you know, it was like mostly just stories about young women who are struggling with career and love, either wherever they live, either the big city or a small town, and just kind yeah. of stumbling toward their happily ever after. And I love that. And maybe because I saw myself in those characters a lot. Uh-huh. And it just let it was just natural for me to write that. I don't know I, if I always will. I, I mean, I, I like to think that I'll have a long career in writing and that maybe someday I will write something different. But right. for now, this this is what I like. This is what you're interested in. I, I love I love romance, but I love the, the funny parts. And it's not all funny. It's not like fluff, but I like humor. And yeah. Escape. Can you talk to me uh, a little bit about that? We've talked to one other guest about humor, and it's something that I am not naturally I'm not natural at humor that's not a thing that you know I have little funny moments in it but it's you you know if it's young adult fantasy it's you know a little bit doom and gloom a little bit kissing mm-hmm. a little bit daggers like and then somebody okay. cracks a joke but can you talk to me about like crafting humor in rom-com specifically like how do you go about that where does that come from I think for me the com in rom-com comes much more naturally than the rom uh-huh. I don't struggle with it that much. Sometimes I go a little over the top and I have to like pare it down. But yeah. I think if you put your character in situations that lend themselves to humor, it kind of comes naturally. And my book, the biggest trope in a scene on TV is a fish out of water. Uh-huh. You take this character and you put them in an environment that they're completely not unfamiliar with. And then they have, and then I layered on that. I have a character who has a certain job that they need to do in that strange place and they have yeah. certain expectations that they need to meet to get that done and then you don't give her those expectations you make it really really hard for her or you know and then I think it, it lends itself then to a lot of character development because yeah. how someone responds to being in an environment that's not living up to their expectations and their plans and their goals you could show a lot about what kind what they have you know inside them to make it work yeah, that's I'm I'm having a thoughtful moment where I don't think I've really it's never really clicked until this point that a lot of humor is like m- a lot of other writing. It's just taking tropes that we love and then playing with them. Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about the fish out of water trope. Right. Like that's you know, we see it all the time with I, I, the I'm not a big rom-com person. So I'm sorry you're not talking to like, <laughs> your your people, um, but I'm getting there. Um, but like Sweet Home Alabama and those other, you know, like you said, those Hallmark movies where it's like, I'm going to go to this, this small town and I'm going to, you know, do this thing. Like there was one I watched on Netflix that was not great, but it's she goes to New Zealand, I think, to uh, make an inn. She yes. wants to. Yes. You know, the, the wine. Yes. I think it's she goes, she wins, she wins it in uh, a prize. And then she travels to New Zealand with like her, you know, fancy bag and her like high heels or whatever. And it's that kind of story of like, yes. and then the end turns out to be this massive yes. dump. Yes, I right? saw that one. Mm-hmm. And it it is playing with those tropes, right? And then playing with them in not a, not a serious way of like, I'm going to make her life as 
miserable as possible, but as miserable as possible. Yes. Yeah. Oh. And then and then you see how they respond after their initial shock and discomfort, yeah. how they crawl themselves, crawl out of that mess and make it work for them. Just that concept of and since we're back, I don't know how this recording will turn out, but we're back <laughs> after a huge blip. Um, I just have never really thought about playing with tropes almost. Oh, I wonder if it's a thing of if it's a, like a degree that you play with tropes, right? Like I'm going to make this, I'm going to seriously play with this trope and make their life miserable. And mm-hmm. then it's, I'm going to make their life miserable, but in this way, like this way that derives comedy. And like you said, I think the comedy too comes from how they react to that, right? Some, mm-hmm. you know, YA fantasy is like, this is terrible and I'm going to get my revenge. Whereas like they're going to get their revenge in a rom-com by like messing with the other character, right? Like, I think it's that degree of what you go those routes. Yeah. Or, or sometimes it's just if so, if they have a goal that something keeps standing in their way, uh-huh. they have to keep pivoting to figure out oh, how to yeah. get around it. Yeah. I like that word pivoting a lot. And I'm actually going to write that down because um, I want to use that for my future. Because <laughs> it is that idea of, pivoting of changing of trying something new and something different and i think we're frozen again okay pivoting. <laughs> the word pivoting which is what we're gonna try to do if this call fails again we're gonna try and pivot much like <laughs> the main character in any book um which is what i want to get to because your character your characters, both of them, but especially your main character seems to do like the whole book is about pivoting. The whole book mm-hmm. is about, I have these expectations. I have these things that I want to accomplish. And then we have to pivot, right? Because it's not mm-hmm. what we expected. Uh, there are things that are actively not working for your main character. Can you talk about that? Like, can, let's start with motivations and conflicts. Cause that's something we like worked with earlier. Like the motivation there what what she wants, and then also the conflicts that get in the way and how she reacts to those. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I knew that I came up with the premise first. I knew that I wanted to write a rom-com that subverted all the small town romance hallmark tropes, but then I had to build from there. So yeah. I had to decide, okay, why does my character love hallmark movies in small towns so much? Yeah. So I created a backstory that lent itself to that. She actually was born in a really small town and her parents were high school sweethearts. They got married really young. And then her father got killed in a car accident when she was like three years old. Uh-huh. So she has built up this relationship between her mom and her dad, who she barely knew her dad wow. for like her entire lifetime as this, you know, romantic relationship. And here she is dating in the city, the last man that she dated, or she thought he was her boyfriend for like 11 months until he finally told her, oh, we were just hanging out. You know, so she deals oh. with like this. And she, it, the book starts off where she comes home from being um, stood up for a date. So she's fed up. She's also juggling two jobs as a barista and a spin instructor while pitching stories for what her dream is to be a, a lifestyle and entertainment journalist yeah. on the side. And, and like nothing is working. So she's built up this small town as what she thinks would make her life just so much more simple. And she's right. got a best friend and the two of them have been watching Hallmark movies for the, since like high school where they have like these marathons. So, but to add to that, she finds out that her apartment where she lives with her mom, she's with her single mother. They're very, very close. It's almost got like a Gilmore girls kind of vibe. They're very, yeah. very close. 
she finds out that they're losing rent stabilized status with their mm-hmm. next lease. And right now she's not really paying any rent. Her mother pays most of her rent and she just pays for like the extra stuff like Netflix and electricity and everything. And so now she feels really, really bad about about her lacking in adulting. Yeah. So when she receives this, the green light to go write this story with the reward of a full time journalist staff position, she motivated to get this story because if she gets a full time job, she can either like help her mom pay for rent mm-hmm. or move out on her own or with a roommate finally and let her mom yeah. live, you know, by herself for the first time in, you know, 25 years. Yeah. I love how, and this is something I constantly struggle with, which is um, a lot of fiction talks about the wound your character is dealing with, right? Um, mm-hmm. The wound in their past that, you know, isn't on the page, but it seeps into the writing. I love how deeply you went back for your character of where does this fascination of small town living, where does that, and not even just fascination, but like importance, personal importance, where does that come from? And it's mm-hmm. this story of her as a, you know, as a child, as her parents, as she like, parents getting together that was small town living that created this wonderful beautiful thing that she can build into this story in her head I think that's fascinating because I never I never go back far enough actually neither do I not on a first draft that's what what my critique partner is for I always think I'm not a plotter naturally Uh but I always spend a lot of time like looking at what my character wants why they want it a little bit of backstory, just so I think I have the bones like settled before I start writing. Yeah. And inevitably, my critique partner will read like the first 100 pages and she'll come back and say, yeah, the motivations aren't strong enough. Okay. Or, you know, I remember my first draft, my um, my critique partner is Samantha Bailey, who is a thriller author. Uh-huh. We, and I critique her and she critiques me. And it doesn't really matter that we write completely different genres. We just, yeah. I know where she needs me and she knows where I need her. And a lot of that is the initial motivations. They're just, they're always too weak to begin with. Right. And she was the one who said, why does she love small towns? It's not just enough. She loves Hallmark movies. Why? Yeah. You know? So that forced me to go back and okay. try to figure out why. Yeah, because I always, I usually, like what you just described, I would stop at the Hallmark movies. Like, she loves them um, because they're a break from her busy life or whatever. That would be my initial thing. And you know what? It might be enough yeah. for some people, but why not dig deeper if you can, if somebody tells you to? You know, I don't really think right. it changed the book. If anything, it developed it a little bit more and made Tina mm-hmm. a little bit more sympathetic and yes. relatable. Yeah, which I think is very important in especially a romance or a rom-com, any kind of romance book, regardless of like subgenre, because it is all about character, right? And the char- yes. the audience has to, um, if not identify with the character, root for them somehow mm-hmm. or understand them or be like, oh my gosh, their life is such a disaster. I can't wait to watch this unfold. Like there has to be something for them to latch onto. And I exactly. think the digger, you, the, like the deeper you dig, the more they latch on, right? Or it adds, it unfolds like elements, right? Like, ah, ha, ha, she loves rom-coms. I love rom-coms too, ha, ha, ha. But then Mm -hmm. you get to that element of, oh, this is her, you know, this is her past with her parents. And, oh, it's kind of a wound. Ooh, that's going to hurt later. Or I I think that's fascinating. That's really great. And I also, I channeled my own love-hate relationship with Manhattan while Uh writing it. 
because I also have sometimes just wanted to go to Stars Hollow. I don't know if you've ever watched Gilmore Girls and just pack it all up and leave the big city and find the only single man in town who happens right. to be me. And, and all the townspeople take me in as if I've lived there forever. And you walk down the street and people say hi. Whereas in my building, everybody's like looking at their phones on their on the elevator. Uh-huh. And I just want somebody. It's just not an acknowledgement. But then right. they don't. I shrug. I look at my phone, too. Right. You know? um, but in this town, people are just people. They're yeah. not all running over to her with with homemade cookies and trying to set her up with their, you know, single nephew, which is what she expected. Right. Inviting her to the pumpkin picking festival, things like that. So yeah. that's so it's in. I mean, it, it sounds like writing this book for you was just endlessly picking at that trope of fish out of water and these expectations that she has and just constantly picking at them and finding things that I guess work with like the picture you're trying to create. Yeah. I mean, I would say like the first 30% is probably her first. She's excited to go there. She has all these expectations. Then she gets there and something is completely different than what she expected, but she thinks, Oh, that's just a fluke. And then it keeps happening. And then she finally has to accept that this is not what she thought it would be, but she really needs to get this story written. And at one point, and a lot of readers thought this was funny and a lot of readers just, it it frustrated them based on reviews Uh that I'm not supposed to read, but sometimes (laughs) you just can't help it. Right. (laughs) At one point she tries to turn the town into a Hallmark town just so that she can get it to fit her story because she really wants to write the story. She really wants a full time staff position. She really wants to help her mother. Yeah. And so she goes to the bar. They have like a, it's called Brothers Brewery and it's owned by it's like family owned. And she asked them, she suggests that they do an Oktoberfest. Uh-huh. They invite people from other towns to come in and they're lazy and they're like, well, it's October. It's we're open. What do we need that for? Yeah. And then she goes to the diner and she says, what about having like an 80s night or karaoke or, yeah. you know, ice cream social or something? And they're like, nah, you know, so nobody will help her. And finally, she realizes how, I guess, pathetic she's being. She can't, it's not up to her to try to make a town the way that she wants it to be. And right. So she comes up with another story that's, you know, adjacent, but not exactly what she pitched. And she hopes that that will work. So uh-huh. she's constantly, she's, in my mind, she's very ambitious. She wants this to work and she'll do whatever she can legally to make yeah. that happen. I think it shows her perseverance. Right. Which anybody in publishing knows is really important. You fall down, you get rejected, you get back <laughs> on, you keep trying. Right. But some people are like, I can't believe she tried to change the town. And you know what? There's some rejection that I will take seriously and or criticism and I'll work on on my right. next book. But it's kind of liberating to know that with, with respect to that, I wouldn't change that. That's no. part of my character. I I personally admire the the fact that she kept trying until yeah. she finally realized that, no, it's not going to work. If she had just been like, oh, it's not a Hallmark town. I'm going to go back to the city with my tail between my legs. Yeah. I would have been like, lady, you know, like, try. Right. Right. I think I I love and I think this is something we haven't talked about a lot on this podcast. So if you don't if this is something you don't want to open up like in conversation, then we can shut it down. But I think it's fascinating to look at. That advice that you get as a debut, right? The advice is to just kind of like, and we were talking about this before we started recording officially, like the advice is to bury your head and not look at anything and then just promote your own book and then just disappear. Mm-hmm. And the truth is you can't, like you 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 can take steps to avoid it, 
but you can't truthfully avoid it entirely, right? Like yeah, it's impossible. Yeah. I won't go on Goodreads. Yeah. I, I go on Goodreads as a reader. Yes. But every once in a while, I'll see if you like this book, you might like, and I'll see mine, and then my thumb will unintentionally hover, and I'll see what my rating is, and I'm right. like, you know, it's impossible not to. Yeah. I don't go out of my way. I don't search my name on Instagram or search my book's title on Instagram, and I'm tagged in mostly favorable reviews. Yeah. But every once in a while, one slips in where they tag me, and I think one said, I really wanted to love this book, but I didn't. Like, yeah. Why did you tag me? You have that, every right to have your opinion, and I don't take that away from you. But mm-hmm. if you need to like point it out to me and re- and invite me to look yeah. at it, it's so hurtful, and I don't understand why yeah. people continue to do that. Yes, this is, and I know our listeners are not the people to say this to, but this is your constant reminder to encourage people. Do not tag authors in negative reviews. Do not tag authors in negative reviews. Let's say it all together. Do not tag authors yeah, in yeah. negative reviews. <laughs> it's 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 so frustrating and I think the the merit of this though is when you get a negative review or when you see feedback that you're that people are like oh I didn't like this part of it or I didn't like this thing there is a way to it's the same thing as critique partners but with on a massive scale right where you say is this something I can learn from is this something mm-hmm. that I can change like if this is this something actively harming someone is this something that yes. you know the pacing was slow okay can I go back and see if there's merit to that because authors are ever evolving their first book is not their best book their second book is not their best book their third book mm-hmm. is not their best book right it keep getting it, better exactly and for you I can see why you didn't wouldn't want to ever change that about your book can you talk about what that feeling is for you? Like knowing this is something worth changing and this is not something worth changing. What is that like for you? A critique partner feedback or anything else? I love it. I will say that every time I get an edit letter, either from my critique partner or my editor, I'm terrified. Yeah. I'm always afraid that I won't be able to do it. It's like a puzzle Uh and the fear is always there. Yeah. But once I have a plan, I sit on it for 24 hours. And once I have a plan, that's my favorite part Yeah. of, of the whole writing process is the revision because yeah. it makes the book so much better. So I, I like that. But when it comes to reviews, it's it's kind of too late. So right. to the extent that I can take that into my next book. Yeah. Great. But is there, so have, one, sorry, I interrupt all the time. Um, has, has there been anything? Cause I'm just curious about that step of the process. I know like we're not going out and we're not hunting our down our reviews, but when you do come across something, has there ever been something that you've come across that you're like, okay, I can't fix that with this book. It's done and done. What is it? Has there been anything that you're like, Oh, I could learn from that and like take that into the next book. I just didn't, I'm just curious. Like, I don't know. I have no stance on this at all. I would say like pacing things. Like uh-huh. I thought my pacing was great. And when I think back, I don't think that any of the scenes could have been taken out. I think that they yeah. all moved the story forward. But I've seen a couple where it said the pacing was a little slow. Not uh-huh. across the board at all, but like one or two have slipped out. So right now I am getting ready to turn my developmental edits to book two to my uh-huh. editor. And it did make me, I deleted a lot of scenes Yeah. where I felt like the things that were relevant could be weaved 
into other chapters, just yeah. the information that was relevant. But the but the scene itself, or at least, or like a chunk of it, several paragraphs were like, this doesn't need to be in scene. It yeah. doesn't move the story forward. So I ended up chopping a lot of book two out based on based on that, and also based on learning. Yeah. You know, like I I wanted my books to be like a little bit longer. Uh-huh. They usually come out to be about. I'm usually an underwriter at first because uh-huh. I'm not big into description and I'm more about dialogue and action than I am like paragraphs and paragraphs of exposition and description. Teach me and your ways. Teach yeah. me your ways. <laughs> so I always worry that it's not going to be long enough. And then mm-hmm. when I turned in book two, it was almost 90,000 words, which I don't know how long YA fantasy are. You're sitting right around there. That's like the sweet spot of YA fantasy when you're okay. querying and then and I think- revisions. Change things. Okay. And I think adult rom-com is usually anywhere between 80 and 95. Yeah. Seen on TV was about 84. And my next book was closer to 90. And -hmm. I was like, wow, I'm finally like learning, like developing more. And then I ended up putting like 6,000 words of that in my developmental edits. And I do think it's better. So I'm thinking, you know what? Length doesn't matter. It doesn't necessarily make it better. No, that's true. That's true. And I love looking at it as a learning process. I'm, I, I'm, I can't imagine what it's like to have a book out, especially a new, you know, baby book. Like it's only, it only came out June 7th, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Like that, it's a baby book at that point. It's just now getting into the world and then getting that feedback. Like you have to make space. It's almost like it doesn't allow you to make space much like an edit letter does, right? A lot of people mm-hmm. encourage you, here's your edit letter, take time to digest and then make a plan of attack and then start making those revisions. You kind of don't have that whenever people do blast those negative reviews at you, which again, I'll say don't tag authors in negative reviews. But it's interesting though. Some of the things that the glowing reviews have loved the most are the things that the not so good reviews hated. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think you can't please everybody all the time. Right. That's it. That's the thing about art and writing and any kind of creative pursuit is that it is so subjective and therefore reviews, especially in mass scale, are not helpful. It's not it's not something you can take with you most of the time. So that's why we kind of like shut it down. Right. And you don't want to paralyze yourself from future writing, which is entirely possible. And it's scary. You got so afraid of people not liking what you're writing that you can't write anymore. Yes. I've uh, there uh, a lot of people talk about that sophomore book, that book too, right? As the one that stumps them the most. That's the one that gets in their way because, and I think it is because they have, you know, they just turned in this beautiful, the most polished thing they've ever done in their entire life because Mm -hmm. an editor has had their hands in it and copy editors have had their hands in it and, you know, on down the line. And now you're starting fresh with yourself with all these reviews too. So that's hard. That's hard stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky in that my second book was due and edited well, by me. Like, it, it was due before the first book really came out, before, like, advanced oh, reviews came out. So I had an opportunity, like, I had the highest of hopes. And yeah. I, was, I was still in that excitement about, oh, my God, I got a book deal. I got a two-book deal before I had to deal with what the world thought about it. Yes. Right now, for me, it's I'm struggling with the third book that I'll be submitting on option. Right. Because that one isn't that one isn't the same as your second book. Like you have a book out, you have a second book in edits like, mm-hmm. oh, my it's gosh, contra- it's contracted and everything. And of course, 
Yeah, I mean, if they didn't like the second book or they didn't think it was publishable, they're they're under under contract. They can say we're terminating this. We'll give you this much time to fix it. But if not, wow. I mean, so they can do that. Thankfully, they haven't. Right. But at least it's in contract, so they're more willing to work with you. When you yeah. have to submit a third book where you have no idea if they want to work with you anymore, it's really scary and it makes it really hard to focus. That is so that is so scary. And for anybody who doesn't understand um, terminology, our podcast kind of goes to like everybody who's just starting writing to people who are published, um, having a two book deal, one being on contract, one is the one they purchase from you, right? And then the second one is the one that they're like, if we like it, we're going to go ahead and publish it. And then the option book is like, they get first dibs. Am I correct in that? Explaining yes. that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that's, you don't have- you don't have to take, if they offer you the book, you don't have to take it, but you have to give them a chance to make an offer before you oh, submit it. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's just offering them a chance to yes. offer on it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, can you like, I don't know if you know this an- like answer. I just am curious. Do you know how that works? Let's say you don't want, not that you do, but like, if you don't want them to have first dibs on that book, does the process just start all over again? Like building a building a list with to send to editors. Do you know what the, how that works? I, I think that's the case. I think okay. it's very rare not to have an option clause, yeah. but, but an agent will keep it as, will try to get it as narrow as possible. Yeah. I think mine was initially any, my next book. Uh-huh. And my agent got it narrowed down to my next romance. Yes. And so that if I wanted to change to women's fiction, I wouldn't have to go give them my okay. first option. But of course, if it had a, a strong romantic subplot, it would still go to them. Right. And that's I mean, the, I love, yeah, I no. love my publisher. I love my publisher. So I'm hoping yeah. that they want to work with so. If you're listening to this publisher, you know what to oh. do. You know what to do. <laughs> um, no, I've heard that before too. And that's the power of having a good agent, right? Is an agent will look at that terminology that says, you know, next book. Well, that's, what if you wanted to write middle grade fantasy and then they're like, we don't want middle grade fantasy. That just makes things unnecessarily complicated. Yes. Now you have freedom like, to branch out. and Yeah. Like we don't want this book anyway, it. but now you still have to wait six months before you submit wide. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly. They, they try to protect you. Yeah. And that's, your freedom. Okay. That's fascinating. I love this. I'm, I'm, I'm a baby agented author now at this point. So I am learning as much as I can about the process, which is just Publishing is both infuriating and fascinating to me. I so. absolutely agree with you. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you ever learn everything, but that's why that's why you have your agent. Right. That's why you have agents, editors, mm-hmm. marketing teams that you can be like, hello, I have a question. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I want to tiptoe back into characters and conflicts and things like that. Um, you had a wonderful review that said character, like they were really into the head of this character. Um can you talk a little bit about that more than just like the motivations or things like that? Why, like, what did you do to craft your characters to where it was just stepping into their, you know, it's stepping into their lives? Well, I write predominantly first person POV. So mm-hmm. already you're in your character's head. Yeah. But what I also do, I think it's really important to have something beyond dialogue because sometimes what you say doesn't match how you feel. So yeah. if the whole book is just like back and forth dialogue, do you want to go out tonight? Sure. Where do you want to go? Anywhere <laughs> you want. But maybe the person is like, oh, I don't really want to go, but I'm going to say yes. 
and maybe it's the first date and you're really, really nervous, but you don't want to say that out loud. So you, you say, you have in the dialogue, sure, I'll go out with you. And then you have the inner thoughts. Oh my God, he's finally asking me out. My hands are sweaty. So I, I try to do a combination of the dialogue and internal thoughts and body language and body yeah. chemistry. But that's also a, a, like a, a very like fine dance because you don't want to have so much internal thought that it's like yeah. novel. Um, what is it called? Belly grazing or something like that. Navel grazing where it's like you're so much in the character's head and like nothing is really happening. I have like, never heard of that term. Ever. I think that's what it's called. I'm going to Google it because I'm curious. I think it's called navel grazing. I don't know if navel is the right word. Okay. Navel gazing, self-indulgent or excessive contemplation of oneself or a single issue at the expanse of a wider view. I have never heard that term before. Thanks for teaching me things. Oh, you're welcome. So glad to be of service. I love that. But it's like, yes, it's a fine line between telling them, telling the readers like nothing about what the character is feeling or showing yeah. them nothing except what they say, which we all know you can't take anybody's words at face value. I mean, unless if you really trust somebody, you can, but for the most part, what you say isn't always the whole story. Yeah. What you're feeling. So I try to do a nice combination of dialogue and internal thought. Yeah. Can you talk to the reactions? My hands, you know, I clench my fist that mm-hmm. shows, you know, Oh my God, I'm stressed or I'm anxious about this. I'm sweating. My hands are shaking. I'm nauseous. Right. And like, I tend to do a lot in my stomach. I have stomach issues. So I feel uh-huh. everything there. Yeah. But I have to be, I have to vary it. I love, I love that you're taking like your own personal, like physical reactions to things and like putting those in the book because that's, it's our firsthand knowledge, right? Like that's how we know when we're stressed. Like mine is I fidget with my hair. Um, mm-hmm. when I'm really nervous, so I'll just sit there and like stroke and like roll the finger and like, that's we like that kind of gets it put into my yes. books as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, like how you find that balance? Because that has been a, that's a hard thing. I think that's one of, one of the first lessons that I learned as a, you know, green writer is how much description to give and how much dialogue to give and where is that balance? Like, when do you choose to give us that internalization? Do you have like some tips on that? Like when should we provide those internal thoughts or physical reactions? I think that when I have dialogue, I don't like too much volleying back and forth without anything, but I also don't want to put a feeling after every single dialogue because especially when you're writing romantic comedy and you want like witty banter, you don't want it to be interrupted by, you know, and then I took a sip of coffee. Yeah. Or, or, you know, I twirled my hair because I was nervous. But you uh-huh. want some. I think you take the funniest exchanges, I would say, leave it as like bare as possible so that okay. people, so that the reader can just really get into the back and forth. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, I, I think it's important. I tend to have, I don't know if I'm doing this perfectly, but I put internal thought a lot because I also don't go through paragraphs, I don't have pages where you're just reading about my character's thoughts. I'm pretty mm-hmm. heavy in dialogue and action Yeah. in my books. So because I don't have like four or five pages in a row where, where the character is just talking about their feelings. I mean, there are yeah. a couple of sections when it's warranted, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not common. For me, it's important to consistently have it in dialogue, with dialogue. Yeah. I also think in the first draft, you, some people are very, very bare in the first draft and they add it later. 
Yeah. And people, you know, throw it all in in the first draft and then go back and they cut it. I always read my books out loud at one point. Yeah. Sometimes you realize you're droning on and on and it's not really necessary. Right. Right. And so you, you just stick to the what's really the most impactful. Like, you don't want to say I was sweaty and my hands were shaking and, you know, mm-hmm. and my lights were. Yeah, I think I said my lights are shaking and all you don't need like four ways to tell somebody that the character is nervous. Yeah. You pick the one that's the most impactful and you can yes. to them. Or else, okay. it's just repeti- or else it's just repetition. And that, and then in that repetition, it kind of loses its efficacy, right? Like it, I've heard that before where if you have a reaction to something and you have three sentences worth of reactions or three different reactions, cut it down to one. Yes. The most powerful one. And then I've never even considered too what you've brought up, which is not after every, like we're nervous all the time. People are nervous all the time, all the mm-hmm. time. So we can't just put in, I'm nervous, I'm nervous, I'm nervous, I'm nervous. You pick the moment and it's the same thing. If I have three different moments on in a scene where they're nervous or they're angry or they're sad, I don't, I don't say it at at every time. I pick the most powerful moment to give a physical reaction or an internalization. I never thought of it that way either. And I think maybe initially, and I'm just thinking of this now, at the initial, at the beginning of the conversation is when the character, when the reader needs to know how the character is feeling, if they're nervous. Uh And then the character knows they're nervous. So until they're not nervous anymore, I think you can leave it alone. Or maybe, you know, you could say something like, you know, I was nervous and my hands started sweating. And then you do nothing. And then at one point they pick up their coffee cup and it's, you know, they're shaking coffee cup just to show that's different. That's not an emotion. That's like a physical reaction. Right. Yeah. That's all like the nitty gritty stuff Mm. that usually usually happens in revisions. Yeah. A lot of what we talk about is like we preface with it's not during your first draft. Your first draft is telling you the story and then revisions. This is where we get into the internalization and the balancing of things. Yes. Interesting. And this brings up like something that I saw recently, which was very profound for me and I hadn't even thought about. And it was writing death scenes or writing big emotional scenes. Don't like the the idea is don't start with the one that everybody expects. So in a death scene, don't have your character cry. Like they shouldn't cry there. Or if it's an embarrassing scene, don't have them jump to, you know, I, I'm so embarrassed and covering their face or whatever that comes later. Have the like go three levels deep. Yes. So, did you watch the emotional it's Donald Moss? Oh my gosh. He has an agent and he also does like a workshop on that. I, I went, did you go to the workshop? I, I went to one of them years <gasps> ago and he says, I think he had us do a practice where he puts us in a situation and you're, what, what is your, what is the character's first reaction? Yeah. What is their second reaction? What is their third? And he says to go with the third. Yeah. Okay. That's where I picked it up because I was talking to a friend like two nights ago and I was like, I have that book. It's on my shelf. I just have never cracked it before. And they were like, what are you doing? Go crack that right now. Because that's where, that must be where it came from. Oh my gosh. Okay. It's a, it's amazing. I don't always remember to do it, but it's, it's in here. Exactly. It's something there. And again, it's that revision because I talked to a friend about it and they were like, I usually don't open the book unless I am about to start a project or I'm about to start a revision because that's when I'm ready to like, you know, scratch a little bit deeper below the surface. Yes. Yes. I read a book. It's called GMC. 
maybe it's GCM. It's Goals, Motivation, Conflict by Deborah Dixon. Okay. And I read that book every time I'm starting to plot out a new book or like research a new book. Because again, like where my weakness sometimes begins is not having strong enough, you know, motivations and stakes yeah. and things like that. And it helps me make sure that those are laid out. And then of course I send it to my critique partner and they're still not good enough, but at least I have a start. Right. Right. It's something more than I used to call them. Um, my love interests used to be cardboard cutout pizza boxes. Mm-hmm. Like they are the guy on the pizza box and they're just kind of like walking around and they have literally no dimension. They're just an empty <laughs> pizza box. Um, but at least you have some pizza in the pizza box when you start. Yes. It may not be the ba- the best pizza, but there's something there. And then um, you add the sausage and the right in and the yeah, <laughs> which gets me to and I was like turning into a 13 year old because I was you like sausage. I was sausage. like sausage <laughs> because this is what we talked about before. Anybody who doesn't want to listen to about um, the crafting of sex scenes, we've never talked about this on Basic Pitches, and I'm very excited to talk about this because I am the world's most awkward romance person with writing I am you know especially in YA fantasy I have a fade to black scene I am now stepping into adult romantic fantasy and it's it's happening it's gonna happen (laughs) so can you talk to me about crafting sex scenes when why how anything I'm gonna try not to be an awkward duck about this Okay, well, I I just want to preface this by saying I love reading romance and romantic comedy, and I don't care if it's fade to black, if they're like mild sex scenes, or if they're super super steamy. I don't read them for that purpose. Yeah, I love all. I love them all. Yes. And I like sex on the page for mine, uh-huh. but it's mild. I, yeah. I I define my books as charming romantic comedies with a splash of heat. Yes. So I do, you know, and a couple of people read my book and they were like, wow, it was so steamy. And I was like, really? Because I, I think that they're pretty mild, but they are on the page and there's, I think, yeah. like scenes in them. I love reading really, really steamy where you go into like the graphic, you know, what body part is doing what. I don't write mine that way for the most part. Uh-huh. I, I think and I think that the most important thing about writing a sex scene is feeling comfortable and I guess finding your own way. Yeah. And I feel like, especially between revisions of book one and writing book two, I'm starting to kind of find my sex scene style. Yeah. And a lot of it, I, I add a lot of banter in it, a lot of, right. lot of joking, and how I, I concentrate more on how my character is feeling and what they're thinking about in the moment than, mm. you know, mm. where they're licking this or sucking yeah. that. I mean, and I have to make that clear to the reader, but I don't. I don't really go there that much. Right. My steam steam parts are usually like a paragraph. We're yeah. getting it done. And then it's just <laughs> the, the undressing part yeah. and the banter. And, and I think that sex scenes should just show the emotional development of the characters. Like in sex, in um, a scene on TV, the first sex scene is they're not a couple yet. They just yeah. have physical attraction and it's not, it's not really a slow burn. It's, it's not insta love. I think it's about 35% into the book where yeah. they have sex for the first time because they clearly attracted to each other. They like each other. They respect each other. And they're stuck in the same hotel. There's yeah. forced proximity, which is another very popular romance trope. Right. So it's more about fun in that. Uh-huh. And then there's a later one when their feelings have grown and they've talked about them. And, you know, he has a lot of his own issues and he does not want a long term relationship. 
which yeah. is what she needs. Okay. He wants like short-term dating and he has his reasons and it's not because he wants to play the field. I don't want to go into too many details about it, but yeah. He, She's disappointed because at first she thought that she was going to be fine with the fling. She's in this small town. She's really attracted to this guy. Why not? Yeah. He's treating her with respect. But then they spend more time together and she thinks, oh, this is actually, I'm catching feelings here. Yeah. And then she discovers that he doesn't go there. So yeah. she kind of stops herself. She's like, you know what? Now that I've caught feelings, this isn't healthy for me anymore to just have sex with you. It was fine yeah. when that's all I wanted, but I want more now and this isn't good for me. Yeah. And then later when they really get close, the next sex scene is much more emotional because okay. it's showing how far they've come. So it went from like fun to trust and true emotions. And I think that that's important in sex scenes, too, to kind of know where your characters are with respect to each other when you get to that scene. Wow. And what you want to convey. I love. Wow. OK. I. Hmm. It's very interesting hearing about having multiple sex scenes and almost like what your reader is going to get out of it. Story wise, character wise, emotional wise is totally different because it's all about where that character is on their journey. Right. The first mm -hmm. one is we'll serve a totally different purpose and have a totally different reaction for the reader because, OK, these are just two, you know, these are just two goofballs who like, you know, are attracted to each other. Great. Oh, but now we know details about each other and we know about each other's past and we're digging into those wounds and it's mm -hmm. going to feel a lot differently and read a lot differently. And therefore, I think that would reflect in how gra like I guess like graphic or explicit right how explicit mm -hmm. you are in your descriptions I mean if it's about character it's not about body parts it's about character and yeah. you can reveal character through body parts that's very interesting I've never even thought about it that way and I learned a lot writing a scene on tv because when I was revising my second book which is coming out next summer I changed the sex scenes a lot because it's like it's childhood enemies to uh, enemies since childhood to lovers. Yes. So the first time they have sex, they're like, they have formed like a grudging friendship. Yeah. But, the, and, and but there's like all the sexual tension and they're like, should we do like the character is like, should I do this? I'm changing everything. Life as I know it will never be the same if I have sex with Jude. So it's very tentative. Yeah. She can't help herself. And then later they're completely in love. All the secrets from their past have been revealed that they, there's a, there's just a lot that they've had to yeah. do opposites. She's holding a secret from him. And when they get back together at the end and like really, they really decide to just commit to this for like yeah. the long run. It's a lot more, it's a lot sweeter. It's a lot more emotional. And I didn't always do that. I don't think that yeah. my scenes in a scene on TV or I tried, I don't think they're quite as directly related to where the characters are in the moment as they are in, in book two, but it just shows you like, that you grow as a, an author. Yeah. And that's Which so is, important. Yeah, it is. And I think a lot of people, we, I think we've mentioned this once before, I don't know, but I think a lot of people expect that once a, once somebody has a book published, they're perfect Yeah, and they shouldn't fall from that and, or they shouldn't grow from that or whatever. It's, it is a continually changing process and the person you are today is not the person you are tomorrow when you're working on a new book. Exactly. That, and the, like with the sex scene thing, it's almost like when you set out to write a like a scene that's supposed to be in a book, right? If you're going to write a steamy rom-com, I'm going to walk in being like, okay, there's this, there's going to be at least one or more sex scenes here. Right. 
it's the difference between walking and saying, okay, I'm going to write this sex thing because I have to, or because it's there, or I want to make it the hottest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. It's really, it shows the power of those is in emotions is in showing the stages of where the characters are at. The only thing I can compare it to is if young adult fantasy, there's usually always a ballroom scene, right? Where there's dresses and entourage and savvy, oh, yeah. right? It's, you show up to that and it's like, well, I guess I have to have a ballroom scene. So I'll make everything as pretty as possible. And then I guess you'll stab somebody. And it's like, no, that's not, there's no character there. There's no depth. There's no level. Like it doesn't mean anything unless we tie it back to character. Yes. Cause there, there are expectations in every genre. Yeah. But just throwing in, they, they know. Oh, I just threw in only one bed for this purpose for romance. It's like, right. oh, there's only one bed and there's two of us. And now oh, what are we going to do? And yeah. yes, you can throw that into everything. You can make them enemies to lovers, but you need more to really hold the character yeah. readers expectations. So yes, like I feel like there are certain scenes that a lot of authors want to make sure that they have in their books, but you have to go beyond that, like make it fit right. the actual story that you're trying to tell. And if okay. it doesn't fit, then don't, then you don't need the scene. I'm going to write that down because that's great. If it doesn't fit, you don't need the scene. Yeah, because, I mean, every genre has a bunch of expectations, but I don't think readers expect every romance they read to have every single trope. Exactly. Just because it's this small town, you know, this big city girl comes to this small town doesn't mean that we need every trope from that. Exactly. And I, you know, I don't have only one bed in my second book because my characters don't go anywhere. They're in Manhattan the whole time and they live six blocks apart. Yeah. There's no, like, I I couldn't fit that in. And I was like, I don't need that one. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't have to have all of those tropes for that very specific thing. It would read stupid. I've read a lot of books where I'm like, this is so obvious. Like, they didn't need only one bed. It was only seven o'clock at night. They could have caught the train. Right. Right. You know, um. I think of um, Love Hypothesis. I read that recently and I really enjoyed that because that one was like, it was speaking to rom-com readers and it was like, yes, I'm going to pack in every single trope that you can think of, but it's kind of as a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to the audience, which I was like, okay, that's very fun. That's very fun. I loved that book. I know me too. It's so good. Like, it just, it does. It has all those tropes. It plays with all those tropes, but it is because we know you read rom-com and we know you mm-hmm. watch rom-com. So here you yes, go. I, you know, I have to rub in all the sunscreen that I, you know, accidentally got yes. all over you now. I have to sit on your lap and during the no uh, lecture. Yeah. It's so good. I, I don't know. I think that one is so fun because it is that. But you're right. If that's not your goal, like obviously the goal there was to do rom-com hard. Mm-hmm. The goal might not be to be like, I'm going to wink at the audience and nudge them for rom-coms. I'm just going to write a really good rom-com that is this trope. Yes. Overarching. Wow. I have learned so much today, Meredith. Thank you. Um can you talk to us? You don't have to tell any specifics, but can you talk to us about the second book briefly? Sure. It's called Someone Just Like You. Okay. And as I said, it's an enemies since childhood to lovers, opposites attract, forced proximity rom-com. And it's set in Manhattan. And it's about Molly and Jude, who lived across the street from each other growing up. And they're both the youngest of three children. And their parents are best friends. And they never got along, complete opposites. They're like constantly pulling pranks on each other in a not very 
not in a not kind way, in a kind uh-huh. of like a mean spirited way. Okay. And now they're 27 years old and they're forced together to help plan a, co- a surprise co-anniversary party for their parents who are still best friends. Oh. And Molly and Jude are forced to like pick the venue. So of course at first, like the hijinks ensue again after all these years and then a grudging friendship, but it's ripe with sexual tension. Uh huh. And then they find out that unbeknownst to them, but known to pretty much all their siblings, they have each been dating a version of each other's doppelganger for like the past 10 years. <laughs> Which which is inspired by an episode of Friends, the one with Russ. I don't know if you ever watched Friends. No. Oh, my gosh. And so eventually they – so it raises the question, why are you seeking in romantic partners what you claim to hate about each other? So they finally get together only for, like, secrets and their very, very different personalities to threaten their happy ever oh, after. Oh, wow. That's going to be so good. I, I mean, I'm, I think I'm happy with it. As I said, like reading reviews, like ones that aren't is great. It makes me yeah. doubt myself a little bit, but I'm just, I'm trying to focus on the people who are like, this is, I see on TV was like my favorite romance of 2022 yes. so far. I loved it. I don't know why we put so much more weight on the negative than we do on the positive. I'm I don't so know. guilty of this. Yeah, I don't. It, it is that it is human nature that one negative review will, or one negative comment will destroy a hundred positive ones. And yes. I think we can learn more from the positive reviews sometimes than we can from negative ones. Obviously from critique partners, it's like, I, I, I almost say like negative is not a thing with critique partners. They don't have negatives. It's just yeah, making them stronger. Yes. Yeah, it's constructive. Whereas negative reviews, it's negative. There's nothing constructive there. There's nothing really helpful to you, but you can see from positive reviews, this is what I did well. And this is what I can grow yeah. on. And and I think a lot of times with the debut, at least with my publisher, they had like read now on NetGalley and everybody uh-huh. got copies and everything. And I sometimes I think that the first book is also helping you. F- I mean, I hope that I continue to find my audience, but I think also it helps you find your audience or helps an audience find you. And if yeah. they loved it, they will be excited for the next book. Whereas yeah. maybe somebody was like, oh, this author's voice, it just wasn't for me. Yeah. They might not request the second one. Right. And then there will hopefully be other people who are like, it was decent. Really, I don't love Hallmark movies. So right. I really, so some of these pop culture references, which I have a lot of in my book, they really uh-huh. didn't like, they went over my head, but I'm going to give this author another try because I thought she was funny and I like the grand gestures at the end. I'm just right. thinking about some of the things that people have said. And I hope that they read the second one. Wow. Because, you know, the first book is, I don't think you have to be a Hallmark lover or mm. a Gilmore Girls fan to to read it. Yeah. But I think if you are, you'll appreciate it more. Yeah. But, it, you know, some people reading the blurb might be like, oh, I don't really watch these shows. So the fact that this is like the anti-Hallmark movie, I don't really care. Maybe yeah. they weren't drawn to the book. Right. Maybe, but maybe Enemies to Lovers is something that they, oh, I love that in a romance. So I'll read her yeah. second. You'll constantly be pulling in different audiences. But then I, I think that's a very like astute observation is that the more you publish, the more books you put out there, the more you're going to gather a following. And those people will say, no, I love Meredith Shore has another thing coming out. I can't wait to read it. Right. And those reviews are the ones that, you know, matter those positive voices that are following that journey. Yes. That's fascinating. That's really what a pot, like what a good way to look at it. Right. Of, yeah, those negative reviews, because they don't know me and they don't know what I'm about and they don't know my books. But then the next people will know. They'll know when they pick up a Meredith Shore book. These are the things that I'm promising you. Yes. 
that's the hope. I try I to focus on that. <laughs> it is. I, I know it will happen. I know it will happen. I've seen your book on Instagram and I've been like very excited. I'm like, I'm going to talk to her. Yay. <laughs> so, yay. And this is fun. This has been wonderful. Do you have any lasting last comments that you'd like to make or any shout outs or anything you could, they can buy as seen on TV? Yeah. yeah I mean, you could buy as seen on TV anywhere books are sold. Excellent. If you're from New York, they're signed copies in a lot of the Barnes and Nobles right now. Um, Love Sweet Arrow is a, it's one of the, one of the only two romance only brick and mortar bookstores in the country. And they have like signed book plates and bookmarks. Yeah. But, but you know what? Call up your local library and put it on halt. I don't, I don't care. Yes. I just want you to read my book. Hopefully like it. If you love it, reviews, positive reviews are great. Yes. If you don't love it, obviously I don't want you to leave a review, but if you <laughs> must, just don't tag me in it. Yep. We understand that negative reviews happen. Don't tag them, but please leave a positive review. That is wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Meredith, for talking with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. And I can't wait to see what happens with your next book. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Basic Pitches. We super appreciate it. And we super appreciate you. And I say that with kind of a sad voice because I wanted you all to know right here and now that this will be the last episode of Basic Pitches. There's more information on our social medias, but basically our schedules became too busy to carry it forward. Now, normally I try and make this outro as short as possible, but I'm going to say like an Oscar speech until they start playing the music, which it, it will play any times now. But um, I just want to say thank you. It has been a wonderful experience and a wonderful journey and talking to so many a fantastic, interesting, funny, creative debut authors, and then also talking about so many subjects and hearing from so many people that we are helping in this kind of really tough industry has changed my life. So you all have changed my life and I don't know where we'll go next, but I'm sure we're going to go to interesting places. So I'm not going to say goodbye pitches, but I will say see you later.